Welcome to this episode of the Plant Breeding Stories podcast, where I talk to leading lights in plant breeding, asking what they do, what makes them tick, and what fascinates them about the world of plants. I'm your host, Hannah Senior of PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We design and produce specialist pollination bags and tents used by plant breeders and seed producers all around the world. And through this, I've been privileged to get a unique perspective on how plant breeding globally affects our diets, farming systems, and the environment. I'm excited to share a little of this with you as we meet some of the amazing people who make plant breeding their life's work. Today I have with me Dr. Mark Mesmer, Vice President of Breeding and Product Delivery at Covercress. Covercress is the name of the company and the name of the plant that he works on. And this is a fascinating story of plant-based agricultural innovation centered around a newly developed broadacre crop derived from the common weed pennycress. We discuss putting together a breeding strategy for a crop that's being developed more or less from scratch, finding the best markets and establishing partnerships across the value chain and doing all of that more or less in parallel. Transcripts of this episode and all our podcasts are available at pbsinternational.com forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy it. First of all, Mark, welcome. And would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, Yes, I'm Mark Mesmer with uh, Covercress, uh, which is a new startup company trying to develop a new crop out of uh, field pennycress, mainly for biorenewable fuels and potentially food use in the future. Now, one of the ways I almost always start these conversations and something I'm endlessly curious about is how did you get into plants? So maybe you could tell me a little bit about your background, maybe build that picture for me. Sure. I actually grew up the son of a, a brick mason in uh, in southeastern Indiana. I was good at chemistry and biology in high school. And so I I went to Purdue University and started in biochemistry as my my sort of my first major. And the uh, biochemistry class, I had a genetics class, and that just really fascinated me. And I can remember going to the, back then, you had uh, hard copy course catalogs. And I, I, I can remember going into the course catalog and looking for something that genetics could be used for. <laughs> and uh, came across agronomy and, uh, and plant breeding. And so changed majors progressed through the agronomy curriculum, got a job in the wheat breeding program at Purdue as an undergrad, uh, my final year there. And then via those connections, ended up getting a a graduate assistantship at University of Illinois in corn breeding and um, got a master's and PhD there under Dr. Bob Lambert. And that was that was the beginning. So, you know, my my plant background, my my family uh, didn't have a lot of money, so we grew a big garden. And I was always interested in plants, but uh, never did I believe, or never did I even imagine that I'd end up being a plant breeder and end up where I am today, trying to develop a new crop. Well, that's a really good introduction for um, understanding how you came to um, transition from from I suppose a, a background where you had plants around you, but it wasn't. It wasn't a career that you grew up knowing all about when you first started thinking about what were you going to do for a living. Yeah, I, I mean, I was always interested in numbers. I can I can remember when I was in the seventh grade, I kept track of weather data and just watched watched trends in weather data. And so, <laughs> I love it. You know, numbers numbers fascinate me. Data fascinates me, but uh, the application has been really fun. So you started your career after your PhD with the Gast Seed Company, and then in 
um, the late 90s, you went to work for Monsanto. So just tell me about um, the work you were doing at this time and what kind of crops you were focused on. I started at Garst Seed Company in uh, 1983. Garst was a, it was almost a startup in a way in in that there had been a legal separation between Garst and, and Pioneer and Garst decided to start a corn breeding program. And I was the fourth breeder hired during the first year of that program. And we built that program up from basically zero germplasm, zero anything. It was really a startup breeding program. And uh, over the next several years, ran a corn breeding program. I, I actually pretty much ran a corn breeding program for about 10 years, although in the interim, I, I got involved in management and, and managing other breeders. To make a long story short, in, in 1995, the decision was made to downsize that program substantially and got the opportunity to uh, go to Monsanto in 1997 as their Global Hybrid Wheat Research Director, which it seems a little strange because I'd spent my entire graduate career and uh, commercial career in corn breeding. So Monsanto hired me in that, into that position because of my experience with you know a hybrid crop. And at that time, Monsanto was trying to develop hybrid wheat. And so they wanted somebody who had hybrid breeding background and so on. At that time, uh, Monsanto was uh, in the process of buying a large number of seed businesses around the world, and, and they had purchased the Asgrow seed business in the U.S. along with DeKalb and Holden Foundation seeds. And they made a decision to try to integrate those those programs together, obviously. And in uh, late 1998, I was asked to come back and lead uh, the integration of those uh, breeding programs in North America. So, so I did that. And uh, really for the next... Um, 14 years, 14, 15 years until I retired in 2014, I either led or co-led North America corn corn breeding um, through a really exciting time. And what you've just described for that period of your career sounds like you you know, whilst you were you were overseeing breeding programs and managing integration of breeding programs, you weren't hands-on with the breeding as so much. So tell me, you know, what did you like and what did you not like as a consequence of that? My favorite part of plant breeding is being in the field and sort of being in a situation where I'm walking through the field either alone or with somebody. And I, I it, it sounds a little bit crazy, but uh, just trying to let the let the plants and let what I let I let what I'm seeing sink in from a you know what's actually happening standpoint either genetically or ag- agronomically or whatever and i just really enjoy that i'm i'm sort of a plant nerd if you if you saw my house and my yard right now you would think these people are crazy why would they want to try to take care of all these plants and so i really enjoyed that part of the job and and I, I think I probably spent more time in the field, given that, you know, I, th- this program had 25 or 30 breeders and, you know, 20, 25 sites around the country. And I'd travel around. And my favorite time of year was in the, in the early fall when we would go out and look at plots and talk about products and, and those sorts of things. And so that was my favorite part of the job. Pretty obviously, my, my least favorite part of the job was the administrative stuff. Uh, what I enjoyed was being in the field. And, and of course, in the position that I was in, most of my job really was the administrative stuff and the people management. And I enjoyed the people management management because I, I, I enjoy trying to pull teams together and encourage people to work together. And we were quite successful, as I said, uh, with that. And, and again, the reason for that was we had sort of a singular 
singular goal that everybody was bought into. And, and we just emphasized that goal and emphasized the necessity for people to to really work together and help each other achieve a goal. Your self-description of being a plant nerd, I think you'll be in good company with a lot of the listeners and myself included. So <laughs> we found our community. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> you mentioned earlier that you retired in 2014, but you're still working very hard many years after you quote unquote retired. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Yeah, that's a pretty good story. Uh, when I when I retired, I, I turned fifty seven that summer, and um, people wondered, "Well, what in the world are you going to do?" And I said, "Well, I, I really don't have a plan other than a few of these things, hobby type things." But about two weeks after I retired, I got a call from a guy named Mike Roth, who was uh, one of the founders of Covercrest. At that time, it was called Arvogenics. And he said, you know, um, I, I know you just retired, but what are you thinking about doing? And I said, well, first, in the first place, I'm not thinking about doing anything for about six months. And so I said, I, I, I'll come out to talk to you. Uh, give me a call back in the fall. So about four months later, they called me back and I went out and started talking to them. And one, one thing led to another. And I, they said, well, could, could you start writing a sort of a breeding strategy for this, this crop? At founding back in 2013, the spring of 2013, they had gone out and collected several hundred pennycrest accessions from along roadside ditches and from farmers' fields and so on and so forth to sort of form, form a germplasm base. And they had planted a number of those out and, and started to do evaluations, but they really needed somebody to come in and, and sort of uh, develop a, a real life breeding strategy. So before I even started to work for them, I, I I put together a breeding strategy and was talking to them about that in the fall of 2014. Uh, and then by the time um, January 1st of 2015 came on, I was on board with them uh, with, a, with an agreement to work a day and a half a week trying to implement this, this breeding program. You are now the VP of Breeding and Product Delivery at Covercrest, which has bred, developed, and is now commercializing a novel plant also called Covercrest. Can you tell me a bit about the crop and why it's so unique? Yeah, so Pennycress's uh, scientific name is Thalaspi arvenzi. So this is a, a very, very common weed uh, across much of the, the temperate parts of the world. It's called Pennycress because its, its seed is born in little penny-shaped pods, many, many penny-shaped pods on the plant. It's a winter annual crop, so it, you know, it germinates in the fall, uh, establishes a rosette, anywhere from a one to a four-inch rosette on the soil surface in the fall. Early spring, it kicks into action, starts to grow very quickly, bolts, and by the time May rolls around, you've got a plant that's anywhere from 18 inches, two feet tall to three feet and even three and a half feet tall, depending on the sort of the agronomic situation that it's in. Pennycress is uh, naturally sort of a, a crop of disturbed soils. Uh, the seed are very tiny. They're about a milligram per seed. Uh, wild pennycress has a thick, very fibrous seed coat and can stay in the soil uh, seed bank for, you know, up to 20 years. Uh, so, you know, you, you have disturbed soil, you turn seeds to the surface, the seeds need light, light and moisture to germinate and, and in the fall, and, and there you go. The, the one unique thing about pennycress and the reason that it turned into a crop candidate was the USDA back in the 2006, 7, 8 time frame when, you know, that was back in the biodiesel craze. So the USDA uh, had a program up in Peoria, Illinois that look, was looking at alternative crops and trying to determine what possible other 
species could be used as a, as a winter annual to sort of fill that gap. And probably the earliest thing to mature in the springtime as a winter annual is pennycress or, you know, the brassicas. And, and they, they made the call that, that pennycress was probably the best candidate. And so uh, back at that time, there was a sort of an, an initial attempt at commercializing uh, by another company, an initial attempt at commercializing wild pennycress as a, as a biodiesel crop. Covercress is different from pennycress in that it's been bred specifically to be an oil crop. So what were the challenges that you had to work on to breed characteristics into or indeed out of pennycress? The challenge there is that, and, and we, we figured this out over about an 18-month or two-year period after the founding of Covercress, there are a number of things that are very difficult from a crop standpoint with wild pennycress. One is that that thick seed coat doesn't allow germination to happen very dependably. Second of all, uh, when you talk about the sort of the business plan around pennycress as a crop, the oil makes up about two thirds of the value. So crushing the seeds for the biodiesel or the, the renewable diesel, the oil makes about two thirds of the value and the meal, which is a high protein, high quality protein meal will make up the other third of that, the value. But the meal with that thick seed coat contains way too much fiber to be really effective as an animal feed. So one of the things we learned we had to do was get rid of a lot of the fiber in that seed coat. Pennycress has two other uh, natural substances that we needed to, to mitigate. And one is erucic acid, which is a fatty acid, had negative connotations for human health and, and uh, heart health. So we wanted to get rid of uh, most, if not all, of the erucic acid in case we wanted to use covercress as a, a food oil source. And then back to the meal side, pennycress has a substance called sinigrin, which is a glucosinolate, which is sort of an antifeedant and can be uh, toxic in, in high concentrations. And we needed to get that removed from the meal as well to enable uh, feeding that meal to animals. Really, when you think about it, the entire story is very, very similar to the development of canola from oilseed rape. All of those same challenges existed in canola. Uh, they were mitigated over a number of breeding generations and breeding cycles. It was more complicated in canola because canola, uh, well, pennycress is a diploid species, so pretty easy to work with. We only had one glucosinolate, which was objectionable, and that was sinigrin. Uh, so pennycress ended up being a pretty simple target to try. Uh, Try to fix. Okay, so tell me then, how did you go about doing that? And in a relatively short period of time. Um, as I said earlier, the, the founders had collected germplasm. Uh, we had uh, nearly 900 accessions. The first thing they did, and we've got we've got pictures of uh, these three founders out in the out in the field in the fall of 2013, crawling on their hands and knees with a little quarter teaspoon sprinkling seed on the surface of the soil to to plant the first nursery, which is a, it's pretty humble beginnings. But, you know, that did work. They went through in the, the following spring and selected around 100 uh, accessions that they wanted to put into yield testing in the, in the fall of 2014. Those yield tests were planted over, I think, six different sites, probably three reps per site. And so really my first job uh, when I came to work was in, in addition to sort of outlining what I thought might be a, a breeding strategy or a, a breeding program was to go out and start to try to <laughs> try to learn about this, this plant. And 
And so these trials were planted out across the Midwest. And that's what I did. And that's what I love to do. So that was that was a lot of fun to be able to go out. It was a little cold. I was used to being hot when I look at look at corn, but it was a little bit cold doing that. But it was it was fun. Uh, we we ended up, I think, with two sites that we got reasonable data from. And from those two sites, I narrowed that list of 100 accessions down to 25 that I thought I'd start trying to cross together. And those were, in all honesty, they were the ones that that uh, established Dan most uh, reliably across those sites. And, and they were the ones that appeared to have the best potential yield. And so I started make, we, we started making crosses among those 25 accessions, uh, generated uh, segregating lines, and, and as quickly as possible got those into, into uh, field trials uh, across a number of different sites. And I understand early maturity was also a key breeding trait. Tell me more about that. Yeah. Yes. The, the concept for, for this crop is to, to come in and plant right behind harvest in the fall. And, and at that time, we, we said it was corn harvest, but right now we think we can go behind corn or soybeans in the fall and then get that crop off early enough in the spring to enable a farmer to go in and, and effectively plant the following summer crop. And at that time, it, we figured we, we would be followed by beans. So at that time, it was the the push toward earlier soybean planting wasn't as distinct and extreme as it is now. I mean, farmers now back then, and this was only not even ten years ago. Back then, farmers were planting beans, you know, maybe early to mid May, even late May, and and felt that they were doing the right thing. Today, uh, a lot of farmers are planting soybeans before corn, and they're planting in early to mid late April. And so our concept was to. Our original concept was to try to push early maturity for covercrest back to May 15th as sort of a target date, and that's still our target. Were you just using conventional breeding techniques, or did you use emerging technologies like gene editing too? It became obvious that you know if I was if I was going to make the necessary progress for yield and, and maturity, that we needed to find a different way to improve those those composition traits. And you know, gene editing was uh, just in its infancy, really. Uh, I guess you would really consider that it still is. And we decided as a company to establish our own gene editing program. And to make a long story short there, we've been amazingly successful in establishing this gene editing program. What we've achieved is we can very quickly, within a year, so so if I make a selection, uh, and, and I'm in the process of doing that right now, make selections from this year's data, this year's field trials on uh, native composition pennycress plants, I make a decision in the next two, two or three days on, on which of those I'm going to carry forward to the next generation. I can hand up to, you know, 40, 50 of those off to our lab. And a year from now, we'll have what we call whole grain covercress, which is a covercress that contains low fiber and lower rusic acid that can be used as whole grain chicken feed. So it, it's just an amazing transition and it makes the, the breeding program for yield and maturity so much easier not to have to worry about those things. You know, you develop a high yield early maturity and you hand it off and a, and a year later you've got your potential commercial product. You're listening to Plant Breeding Stories, brought to you by PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We're exploring the personal stories behind people who've dedicated their careers to plant breeding, helping us to more productive plants, greater food security and more sustainable agriculture. Now back to the podcast. You just mentioned chicken feed as an end use for the crop. Was that originally the target market or did that come later? 
Yeah, so the the original big, big target was biodiesel, renewable diesel. But when you think about trying to create enough raw material for a, a large crushing facility and a, a biodiesel facility to work through, there's a gap there. And the gap is that we're trying to introduce a new crop to farmers. I live in the show-me state of Missouri, and farmers are pretty much a show-me group of people, which I don't blame them for at all. But we, need, we needed to be able to introduce this to farmers and sort of get volumes up in, in order to get uh, crushers and, and biodiesel processors interested. And so the question was, how do we bridge that volume gap? And so the idea came up that chicken processors would, would love to use more canola. The problem is canola really doesn't fit the sort of the Midwest growing season. It ends up being too late for a follow-on crop. Covercress in its its final form uh, really uh, is almost exactly uh, from a nutritional profile canola, other than we have a slightly lower saturated fat at the end than canola does. So this idea came up as, you know, could we use the chicken gizzard as a crushing mechanism and and use yellow seeded covercress, what we call covercress whole grain, as a way for us to expand our base to the point where we can have enough acres that biodiesel crushers and biodiesel producers would be interested in the volumes that we could provide. So really, Really, the, the chicken feed idea was a commercial bridge to allow us to grow volumes, make some money, pay back the investors <laughs> to a certain point, and then get into the big acre biorenewable fuel market. And was the chicken feed idea something that came from Covercress or was it an external influence? I believe this was actually an idea from the chicken processor that was brought to us when they heard about the characteristics of covercress being nearly the same as canola. Uh, because they had done the same thing, I believe, with canola. And basically, it's it's incorporated, it would be incorporated in a 4 to 6% portion of the overall chicken ration and is, you know, it would substitute for other oil sources like chicken fat or those sorts of things. So one of the things that's genius about this whole idea of turning pennycress into a crop is, yes, it provides a feedstock for, for the chicken market and it's a potential buyer fuel, as we've talked about, when the volumes get big enough. But there's also very real benefits for the farmer and for the environment. So let's talk about that for a bit, because it's part of what makes this so interesting. Yeah, it, it really is. You know, there continues to be a more and more of a move toward um, awareness of, of soil health and, of course, carbon sequestration and all of those things. So for the farmer, as, as, we've, as we've developed this thing as a crop concept, one of the really heavily driving factors for us has been we want this to be a very low cost alternative to another crop for a farmer. And so almost everything we've done has been pointed toward allowing our agronomic system to just bolt on to existing passes across the field for a farmer. For example, right now, our initial recommended planting method, although there are many different planting methods that could be conceived with, with covercress, our re initial recommended planting method is to 
incorporate planting with a with a vertical tillage pass across the field right after harvest. And many, many farmers in our initial target market area of Illinois, and I think it's expanding, do do that to, to break down the heavy corn stover cover that's left after harvesting a 250 bushel corn crop. And if they've got a seeder on their vertical tillage tool, uh, we seed at five pounds per acre or so makes it a really easy one pass method. We're not adding a pass across the field. We're seeding off the tillage tool to get planting completed. We actually, from a business standpoint, our, our plan is to actually supply the seed to the farmer free of charge. The farmer plants the seed. We come in and help the farmer decide in probably early to mid-March whether they have a, they've established a stand that's adequate to support a profitable yield. The one thing that it takes for covercress is a, is a timely rain in the fall to get things going before it gets too cold. And sometimes that'll happen and sometimes it won't. There is a, a fairly broad window there. So anyway, the, we, we come in and to, the, to talk to the farmer and, and give them recommendations on whether they have a commercializable stand in mid-March, early mid-March. Their first real investment, assuming they didn't make an extra pass across the field to plant in the, in the fall, is to apply... 50, 60 pounds of uh, nitrogen and probably some sulfur in the early spring, similar to what you would do with wheat. And then it's the farmer's responsibility to harvest and deliver the crop to a collection facility. At the point they deliver to the collection facility, they get paid and we get paid. So it really is the, the, the payment and the, the whole financial piece of it is, is predicated on how much crop you can generate. But the farmer has very little investment until they apply the fertility in the, in the spring. And the only other investment they have is, is running the combine through and, and getting the, the product to the collection facility. And what's your target yield level? Our target yield level for, for Covercrest for really profitability for everybody in the value, value chain is around an average of 1,500 pounds per acre, which would equate to maybe 35 bushels per acre. At that level, and, and it's, it's probably gotten better in the last few months with the fact that oil prices have gone up. Uh, we're, we're sort of tied to the, the, the price of soybean oil. The initial payback to the farmer would be a net $50 per acre. And at that level, um, some farmers are interested. Some farmers say, you know, I'm not sure it's worth my, worth my effort. But what our objective is, is to get this thing introduced. And over time, as yields go up, as the value of the oil goes up, uh, just uh, naturally with the demand for biodiesel, bio-renewable bio fuels, that profitability for us and for the farmer will, will rise as well. So that net $50 an acre, it, it might not be astronomical in the grand scheme of things, but that's over and above what they get, what the farmers got, get for their conventional harvest, isn't it? It doesn't impact on that. The The only way that it impacts on that is if, if we're harvestable too late into the spring and soybean planting or corn, the follow-on corn planting gets to be much later than what they want it to be, eventually in the spring, if you plant late, you're just going to start to lose yield on the follow-on crop. And so that's why we have a lot of focus on earlier maturity. How did you get the farmers on board you know, they are a diverse group with different interests. So how did you go about even having the conversation, understanding their concerns, understanding what would it take for this to be attractive? You know, just talk to us about that. 
a lot of our early farmer discussions really revolved around talking to our plot trial cooperators um, that we were able to find that were willing to plant this weed in their fields and and trust us that it that it wasn't going to create a problem for them. And, and I have to say, I'd have to say thank you to those people because it's it wasn't the easiest conversation to say, hey, I'm going to come plant weed seed in your field and, and do yield trials on it. But in the last couple of years, we've really sort of ramped up the farmer connection process. And in particular, in the last six to eight months, we've done that. We had a number of field days at our research sites over the summer. At these field days, we had a number of sort of not not necessarily farmers, but influencers of farmers. And those people have been just so helpful in sort of spreading the word. Uh, we also this spring for the first time hired a chief commercial officer with many, many connections to some of the ag retailers and so on. And so we've really begun to get integrated with them in terms of helping us sort of build toward that that commercialization event. I have to tell you that when you said influencers, you know, in the, in that context, it made me think of sort of social media influencers, um, which might be a slightly different thing. So when you to describe a, an influencer in this context... Well, there are a couple of guys that uh, that support sort of the ag uh, technology community in St. Louis that that I can think of that have been at to several of our field days, and you know they're they're people that basically have connections to groups of farmers, and they 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 talk to farmers about what's up and coming. It's just folks that are sort of independent from us. I mean, we've got a vested interest. They don't really have a vested interest, but they've heard our story a number of times. They understand our story reasonably well and, and our objectives. And and they've been to the fields and they've seen, seen the fields and they think, you know, this this could actually work. And so it's, it's, really, it's really a soft sell sort of a situation. We don't really want a hard sell. What we want to do is prove this technology and have it stand on its own and not really have to hard sell it. You mentioned, you know, going to talk to farmers and saying, hey, can we try this weed seed in your fields? And it does raise a good question about are there risks to this crop? You know, if it's generated from a weed, could it go rogue? Could it become invasive? Could those, you know, introduced properties become a problem for natural varieties in the biodiversity. Tell me about that. Yeah, we've thought a lot about that. And and actually, this lower fiber seed coat thing is a really good example. You know, there's obviously a concern that, you know, native pennycress is very persistent in the environment. Now, the good thing about native pennycress is there isn't a her there isn't a broadleaf herbicide that exists that won't kill it. And the guy that works with me he says cold hard steel is really good too. <laughs> so I mean it's not hard to control. If you harvest uh, covercress in the spring and you follow it up with soybeans, covercress does not do well with hot temperatures. It needs a lot of light. Um, so if you you know you close a canopy. Uh, above pennycress, it's basically going to die. Uh, the other thing is it needs to be vernalized. So in the follow-on summer crop, you know, you're, you're not going to get vernalization and therefore you're not going to get bolting and it's going to stay as a rosette on the surface of the soil. So there's no way that it can compete with the follow-on crop. I mean, that, that thick seed coat that we removed, uh, I mean, we removed 50% of the fiber from that seed. And so from a, just a degradation standpoint in the soil, we, we believe that this will actually be way less soil persistent. And uh, between that lack of persistence and the fact that there are so many ways to... 
eliminate pennycress, covercress from a weed control standpoint that oh, we don't believe that's going to be a problem at all. And in fact, you know, one of the biggest challenges for us in running the breeding program is to find fields that are free enough of uh, winter annual weeds that we don't have to compete with them because at this point in time, we don't have a way to control those weeds. Now we're developing a way to control those weeds. We've got uh, edited ALS tolerance in the field in Wisconsin right now that's been sprayed about three weeks ago and it looks great. So we're going to have a system, but you know we haven't had a system at all and everything else, everything else kills pennycress. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what's next? What are you looking forward to? We're, we're working really hard on thinking about the commercialization process here over the next couple of years. And, and we've learned so much. I mean, typically when you think about, you know, historically, there are lots of papers that have been written that say that the growth in, in yields in agriculture are, you know, both due to agronomic improvements and genetic improvements. And this is absolutely the same story. For me, it's going to be really fun to see us work hard to get the crop planted under the right agronomic conditions at introduction so that the the customer has a good experience. I just hired a a, a breeder and a genomicist to sort of take the the breeding program to the next level. I'm really looking forward to what those guys are going to be able to do. My objective in this really was to to get us to the point where we had a commercializable level of yield and, and agronomic understanding. And I think we've gotten to that point. But there's so many things that can be uh, improved uh, from a profitability standpoint, you know, higher oil, higher yield, earlier maturity, disease resistance. You know, if we if we go to 10 million acres, there are going to be disease problems that are going to crop up and we're going to need to be prepared for that. And we've actually started working on some of those things. My focus, like I say, has been mainly yield and maturity. Uh, but these new folks uh, with their with their focus more on, on the genomic side of things, I'm hoping can, can uh, carry this breeding program to a to, to be a really 21st century breeding process, breeding program, using all the tools that are available. And, and, and those, you know, the commercialization thing and seeing the breeding program really become a modern high-tech breeding program are, are the couple of things that I'm really looking forward to. Knowing what you know now, if you were to look back to the start of your career and do it all again, is there anything you'd do differently? I don't know. I mean, I, I might have... Uh, remained in the field as a breeder longer than I did because <laughs> that's the part that I really enjoy. But, you know, in the end, if I had done that, I might not have taken this opportunity. And this Covercrest thing has been really a unique opportunity. I mean, I I think to myself, how many people get the opportunity to try to invent a new crop? It boggles my mind that I'm in the process of trying to do that. And, um, I think it could be really transformational in starting to think about ways to to carry agriculture forward. And so, you know, other than the fact that I always loved being in the field and there were a number of years that I really couldn't be uh, just because of other responsibilities, you know, I wouldn't change very much. And I think that the, the fact that that happened probably drove me to say, yeah, I'm not just going to quite retire yet. I think I'll try to make this weed into a crop. And it's been really fun just trying to fight through all of the challenges. And, uh, you know, there have been so many times that we've come to uh, mid-May and we've really wondered whether we were going to make it through the May, the, the June or July board meetings. <laughs> and, we, and we always have by the skin of our teeth. And, uh, and uh, we're, I think we're past that point now. That is a great note to wrap things up on. Um, It's been such a pleasure. It's such an interesting story. Dr. Mark Mesmer of Covercrest, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you too. Uh, Enjoyed it a lot. 
You've been listening to Plant Breeding Stories by PBS International, and I'm your host, Hannah Senior. Plant breeding is a pretty specialist podcast topic, which can make it difficult for people who share our interest in this kind of thing to find it. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, recommend it to your friends and colleagues, and please help others in the plant science community to find it by rating this episode and subscribing to the series. I'd love to hear from you if you want to suggest people you'd like me to interview. You can contact me on Twitter at PBSint or on Instagram at PBS underscore int. Until next time, stay well.